During one particular icy winter, a couple from Minneapolis, Minnesota, decided to travel south to Pensacola, Florida for a long weekend of thawing out. But because both of them worked busy jobs, they found it difficult to coordinate their travel schedules. And so it was decided that the husband would head down to Florida on Thursday and that his wife would follow the next day on Friday. Well, Thursday came around and the husband flew down, landed, and checked into the hotel. Now, the first thing that he did when he walked into his hotel room was he opened up his laptop computer and he wrote his wife, who was back in Minneapolis, an email. However, during the composition of this email, he accidentally, unintentionally, inadvertently left off one letter of her email address. And without realizing his error, he thus sent this email to the wrong address. In Houston, a widow had just returned from her husband's funeral. He was a pastor for many, many years and had returned home to glory after suffering a heart attack. But she returned home from the funeral and she booted up her computer. She was going to check her emails. She expected to receive a lot of emails from friends and family members sending their condolences. Well, as she booted up her computer and she opened her web browser and went to her email, the first email in her inbox sent her crashing to the floor. Her son in the next room over rushed into the room, found his mom lying there on the ground, and the email still on the screen. Now the email read the following. To my loving wife, from your departed husband, subject... I've arrived. Hey, honey. I've just arrived and have been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. It sure is hot down here. Is hell really real? And if so, how could a good and loving God send people to hell? Today we're going to raise some hell, literally. Today we continue our Why I Believe sermon series. We're exploring why I believe in hell. Is hell really real? And if so, how could a good and loving God send people to hell? Is hell really real? Is it really the place that is aflame and plumes of smoke and sulfur and devils with pitchforks fluttering about? Is it really the place of eternal torture and torment? And if so... 
How could a good and loving God send people to hell? I mean, it seems rather uncharacteristic of God's nature, the good, good Father that we serve and praise and live for. How could a good and loving God send people to hell? Well, before we even go any further, let's just hold up. Like, why are we even talking about hell? Like, nobody ever talks about hell. Precisely. That's why we're talking about hell. But also, before we re-image hell this morning, I want to say two things. The first thing I want to say is, if you feel unnerved and uneasy about this subject matter regarding hell, that's okay. I think that's actually completely normal when we talk about hell. It should make us feel uneasy and unnerved. But if you feel uneasy and unnerved about this subject matter, about hell, because it makes you worried sick, because you think of a loved one, a family member, or a friend, and they passed on, and you're not sure where they were in their relationship with Jesus. You don't know if they knew Jesus or not, or had a relationship, or had experienced salvation, and it makes you worried sick. I want you to know We don't know what happens in those last few moments before someone passes on. And I pray, I pray that they came to faith. You know, faith is what this sermon series is all about, why I believe. Faith is the center of our memory verse. So I invite you to stand, if you're able to stand, as we read from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, this is from the Amplified Translation of the Bible, and they like to put uh, brackets with Greek nuances that kind of help to give a a background to the text in view. So all of those bracketed areas are nuances from the Greek text. It says, now faith is the assurance or the title deed or confirmation of things hoped for, divinely guaranteed, and the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of their reality Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. Lord, we come before you today with some very troubling questions. Is hell really real? And if so, how could you, our good and loving God, send people to hell? Give us clarity and understanding and insight. Give us answers, we pray. And also, Lord, teach us how we, your people, can do something about this. How we can play a part in bringing salvation to people of this world. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Scripture teaches about two eternal realities. We've got heaven and we've got hell. Everybody likes to talk about heaven, but no one really likes to talk about hell. But did you know that about 73% of the time, almost three quarters of the time that the word hell shows up in the New Testament, it comes straight out of the mouth of Jesus? Jesus spoke about the reality of hell and he warned his listeners to avoid it, as he did so in the parable of the wheat 
and the weeds. So turn with me now, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. It reads, He presented them with another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a person who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. This word we see translated here as weeds is actually the Greek word zizanion, which botanists today might classify as a particular weed called bearded darnel. Now, this weed is nasty and pesky, and it has poisonous seeds. At its early stages of development, it looks just like wheat. It looks very similar, but what happens as this weed matures is its roots intertwine with the roots of the wheat, and then they grow up together, and you can't really separate them until harvest time. But at harvest time, you can clearly see one is wheat while the other is is a weed. Verse 26 says, When the plants sprouted and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. So the slaves of the owner came and said to him, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? He said, An enemy has done this. So the slaves replied, Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, since in gathering the weeds you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, but then gather the wheat into my barn. Then Jesus proceeds to share some various parables about uh, mustard seeds and about yeast, and then they head home or to the home that they were currently residing in, a, a house probably in Capernaum. But on this road, the disciples are mulling over this. They're still confused about this particular parable, about the wheat and the weeds. And verse 36b says, And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40 says, As the weeds are collected and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin, as well as all lawbreakers. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The one who has ears had better listen. Going to hell in a handbasket. Is hell really real? I believe in God. Therefore, I believe in the word of God. Therefore, I believe in what the Word of God says. Therefore, I believe in what the Word of God says about hell. That hell is really real. 
The fact that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, and the fact that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in all of Scripture, says to me that hell is not only really real, but also really important. Hell is described in Scripture as the dark side of eternity. Let's break this down. Hell is the eternal tragedy where the unrighteous suffer eternal separation from their creator. According to Matthew 25, 31 through 46, hell is a place of never-ending punishment after judgment. Jude, verses 6 through 7, and Matthew 25, 41 speak of hell as a place for Satan and the fallen angels. And then in Matthew 18 and also in chapter 8, hell is described with imagery of fire and darkness where people lament. Well, throughout human history, people have tried to express and understand hell in various different ways. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at three different examples of people throughout human history and their perspectives on hell. The first, we're going to go back to the 3rd century A.D. to an early church father named Origen. And this is what he said about hell. That hell is a place where the souls of the wicked were purified so they can find their way back to God. Sounds nice. Happy ending. Everybody wins in the end. But you know what? For some people... Being with God would be hell. This view is considered heretical and thrown out. It's unbiblical. But the second view will move along to the Middle Ages, to the most famous poet in all of Italy, a man by the name of Dante Alighieri. In his famous work, his masterpiece called The Inferno, he depicts hell as a place under the earth's surface with nine levels of suffering where sinners were bitten by snakes, tormented by beasts, showered with icy rain, trapped in rivers of blood or flaming tombs, and some were even marinated in huge pools of human excrement. Yuck. Very imaginative, maybe not so scriptural. But the third view we'll look at is much more contemporary. It's from the famous rock group ACDC. <laughs> Hell ain't a bad place to be. It's where all our friends are. I don't know about that. What does Jesus say about hell being really real? Let's take a look. Jesus repeatedly spoke of this dark side of eternity as Gehenna. That's the Greek. Now, we transliterate it. We take these Greek letters and put them into English letters, and it becomes Gehenna. Take, for instance, in Matthew 23, 33. You snakes! You brood of vipers, he's calling out the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell, to Gehenna? Well, as I said before, Gehenna is a translation of the Greek Gehenna. Well, Gehenna in Greek is a transliteration of the Hebrew term Gehinnom. 
I know it's a lot. You're doing really good, so stay with me right here. Basically, Gehenom, where we get this whole word for hell in the Greek text, comes from a Hebrew word, Gehenom, which is a proper noun, a place, the valley of Hinnom. It's a physical place that they're referring to, but it's also a spiritual place. So let's understand a little bit more about the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a valley located south of Jerusalem. As you can see on the map, it's just south of the lower city of Jerusalem. But it was a place where under two kings of Judah, Ahaz and Manasseh, the people sacrificed their children to worship two Canaanite gods, Molech and Baal. Basically, they would take their babies and toss them on burning altars in a way of paying homage and worship to these so-called fertility gods. The hope was that they would take their newborn baby and throw it up on that burning altar and that this fertility god, Molech or Baal, would then in turn give them much more fertility throughout the rest of their lives. So child sacrifice was going on in this place, while in Jesus' day, this valley was used as a burial place for criminals and also for burning garbage. It was located outside the city of Jerusalem, so it formed an appropriate metaphor for hell. Gehinnom, or Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom is therefore the baby-burning, pagan-worshipping, garbage-dumping, prisoner-burying locale outside the walls of Jerusalem. And this physical place of defilement, it forms a good analogy for the spiritual place we call hell. I'll say that again. This physical place of defilement it forms a very fitting analogy for the spiritual place that we call hell. Well, let's return to our passage in view this morning and go back to understand the fate of the weeds a little bit more. Verse 40 says, As the weeds are collected and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin, as well as all lawbreakers. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is quite clearly an image of hell. Fiery exclusion and separation weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then you combine it with all the other biblical images of hell throughout Scripture, like eternal fire and outer darkness, second death, torture and torment. Yikes. Although some like to interpret these images in a literal manner, where it's actual eternal fire, where it is actual outer darkness, I think there's actually a point to exploring these in a figurative sense. There might be deeper truth and also actually deeper severity as we understand these, not just in a literal way, but perhaps also in a figurative way. Let me show you what I'm talking about. As we're talking about 
as we talk about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. This could refer to crying and rubbing your teeth together, grinding them together, or this could also represent what the wicked do when they see the righteous prosper and and feel remorse at their own situation. It's a hellish combination of rage with extreme suffering and remorse. Next up, we've got eternal fire. This may represent anguish when a person realizes they have spent their entire life chasing after what was perishable and temporary rather than imperishable and eternal. How about outer darkness? Outer darkness represents hell as isolation, estrangement, and loneliness, separation from the realm where believers bask in the light of the presence of God. The unrighteous can only grope in darkness. Second death. Second death represents hell as the total separation from God and the community of the righteous. And then finally, torture and torment represents the reality that hell is failure. I was Googling various images and I was figuring out like what torture device should I put up on the screen? And there's nothing more torturous than calculus. So, I mean, some people think of hell as like, you know, you're just getting crucified over and over and over and over and over. I think it's probably more like doing calculus or long division over and over and over for the rest of eternity. Sorry if you're a math major or you love math. But you know what? Whether you interpret these images in a literal way or in a figurative way or some way both, There's nothing more horrific than the reality that hell is a place where God is not. That this means hell is chock full with zero hope, zero peace, zero love, zero goodness, and zero joy. Even in tragedy that we see in our world, murder and rape and abuse and genocide, Situations where it seems like hell on earth, God is still present. And despite what you may think, despite what you may hear or see on the news, our world is still abounding with goodness and beauty and joy and hope and peace because God is still involved in it. But when it comes to hell, that's not the case. A couple of months ago, I heard a radio broadcast about a 10 or 11-year-old boy who was found dead in a closet, wrapped in a rug. Now, the next few lines of the radio broadcast included the words, cockroaches. He weighed 34 pounds. Child Protective Services, Mother Arrested. It's as infuriating as it is heart-wrenching. It sounds like hell on earth, but it's not. It's not because people still care. It's not because people are still enraged at this. It's not 
hell on earth because people are still driven to seek justice. But in hell, that's not the case. Is hell really real? Yes, hell is really real. It's terrible and terribly real. And you know what? God is kind of starting to sound a little bit terrible too. God is starting to sound like the dungeon master who eternally subjects his victims to unimaginable tortures. Does God say go to hell? How could a good and loving God send people to hell? If I had 25 cents for every time I've been asked this question, I would be a H-E double hockey sticks of a rich man. How could a good and loving God send people to hell? The question is obviously loaded, but it is excellent for us to explore this morning. How can a good and loving God send people to hell? Well, first of all, God is perfect love and altogether good. That's not just my assumption or my opinion or my estimation. God is perfect love and altogether good. He's actually the author, the founder, the creator of love and goodness. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. The person who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God is revealed in us, that God has sent his one and only Son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. How could a good and loving God like this send people to hell? Well, if God is perfect love and altogether good, that means he gives us the freedom of choice. The freedom to choose God, to accept God, or to reject God. Therefore, I believe hell is a choice. C.S. Lewis, in his work, The Great Divorce, writes, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. In effect, what he is saying is that by their choice, the damned, that is, those in hell, are like rebels who have locked the gates of hell from the inside. Does God want this? Does God want people to go to hell? Hell no. That's the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 4 says, God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the truth is, God loves the hell out of you. Literally, 
He loves the hell out of you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, to give his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute, not just for the faithful, not just for those who believe, but for all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says, And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. If Jesus died for all, as an atoning sacrifice for all sin, that says, you sinners, and all your sin is forgiven. No matter what, no matter if you accept it or reject it, it doesn't matter. You are still forgiven. If Jesus died for all sin, then this brings us to the mind-boggling, astounding, heartbreaking, unthinkable reality that the damned go to hell forgiven. How could a good and loving God send people to hell? The question is all wrong. The question is all backwards. The real question is, how could a corrupt and sinful humanity reject a good and loving God? A God who says, I love you, I care for you, I've forgiven you, I've redeemed you, I've reconciled you, I've brought you back, I've gone the distance for you. A God who says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, because I know you're weary and I know you're burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. So change your heart and change your lives. Come to repentance and come to acceptance. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. But if you don't, you won't. About 10 or 11 years ago, I met a a man named George from Alabama. And George uh, was an older gentleman. He had worked for many years at a beer company but he was also a raging alcoholic. So those two things don't mix all that well. But he came to Jesus and he came to sobriety. Well, I met George in Eastern Europe. We were on a missions trip together and we were actually paired together with a group of Slovak students who knew nothing about Jesus. Now over the course of our discussions with the students, I began to feel like, over the, the days and weeks that he was kind of derailing everything. He was an old school guy who was using old school techniques and tactics. He was bringing out tracks and he was using a turn or burn evangelism where basically he would ask people like, do you know where you're gonna go when you die? Because if you don't accept Jesus, you're gonna burn in hell. I thought, oh man, you and your old school techniques, they won't work here. 
I was pretty prideful about it, looking back. I was pretty arrogant about it. But I remember on the, the last night of the camp, we were all gathered around a campfire, and all the students were sharing, some of the leaders were sharing, all the fun stuff that had happened over the course of the last couple of weeks. And I remember George gets up, and he stands right beside the fire, and he says in his thick Alabama accent, I have never felt the presence of Satan so strong as I have in this place. And I could, I could swear the, the flames, they leapt up into the sky as he said this. I just roll my eyes. And he goes on to deliver a turn or burn spiel. Put my head and my hands up. And you know what? It didn't work. It didn't work. But years later, I think about this. And I've been humbled by what George did and by what George said. And it's not my style. Definitely not my technique. But I'm humbled by this reality that even though it didn't work, even though it didn't work in this particular time and in this particular place, even though it didn't work, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not true. The truth is there is salvation in no other name, in no other name but Jesus. And if you don't accept Jesus, you accept hell. And we don't want to say that in church. We don't want to say that when we're talking to people. But it is the truth. It is the reality. I see pastors on television networks who are asked this question. Is Jesus the only way? And I'll tell you right now, yes, Jesus is the only way. What they like to do is they try and soften the blow and try and skate around the fact that no, the truth is, if you don't accept Jesus, you accept hell. But then what do we do? People who maybe have accepted Jesus into our hearts, people who we know our eternal destination, that we are going to be with God forever and always. Like, what do we do because we're surrounded maybe by people who might not? I think this should motivate us and encourage us to go out and love the hell out of people. Literally, love the hell out of people. I take the words of Charles Spurgeon very seriously. I take him to heart, and I hope that we as a church would do too. That if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We have a gigantic task before us to love this world one person at a time. But we are not alone. God is with us. So let's go and love the hell out of people. Father, we thank you for this time. And I ask, God, that you would stir in our hearts this motivation to love you deeper, 
to love the people around us more honestly and in a deeper way. I pray, God, if someone is in here today and wants to accept you for the very first time, they would say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me and for my sin. But you rose again and you defeated death. So come into my life and show me how to live. I want to follow you all the days of my life. So Holy Spirit, would you guide me? Father, I pray that we would take these words seriously. them out. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for who you are and how far you have gone for us. Help us to do the same, to go as far as we can for you. In Jesus' name.